You're going to love this. Just love it. No fear today. Yep. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you and happy to be here live back on KPFK in Los Angeles, 90.7 FM. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest in China Lake, out there in the sweltering desert, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, on your smart devices, on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, and live on Liberal Justice Radio... This is your Bradcast. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Back with you live on this, the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, back on August 28, 1963. It is August 28th. 2013 Wednesday and our live uh, continuing coverage of the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington continues here on KPFK. We've got a lot ahead for you on that and a lot more. Uh, so you'll want to stay tuned. We're, gonna, we're covering everything today. Uh, of course, I said, as I said, I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We are keeping our eyes on the developing events in Syria and a reportedly imminent attack, I should underscore reportedly imminent attack in the next day or two, an attack of some sort in retaliation for Bashar Assad's purported use of chemical weapons out there in Syria. And, of course, the question that not enough folks in the media are asking, are we making the same Iraq mistake again? I want to point out, since we don't have time to go into details uh, today because of our special coverage of the uh, 50th anniversary, uh, I want to point out that there has so far been no hard evidence presented by the U.N. inspectors who are in Syria now, even as we speak, investigating what's going on. We're still waiting for a report back from them. We are still looking for that evidence for public scrutiny over the use of chemical chemical weapons, the purported use of chemical weapons, and most crucially, I should add, in my mind, evidence of who actually was responsible for using them, if in fact they were used. Uh, I, I see so many people in the media ready to rush to war as if we did not learn anything 10 years ago. Um, so we're keeping our eyes on that, but I would ask you to keep your eyes on it as well. And if you see any of that evidence, that actual evidence of A, chemical, web, uh, chemical weapons being used, and B, who was responsible for their use, 
please let me know. Oh, you can let me know, by the way, on the Twitters. I am the Brad Blog over on the Twitters. Also, coming up this show, the release of the secret FISA court decision, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, the secret court uh, decision from 2011 on a secret NSA request for surveillance back in 2011. That finding has finally been released in redacted form, finding that the government on multiple occasions misled the court and illegally and unconstitutionally were found to have collected tens of thousands of emails of Americans who had nothing to do with terrorism investigations. That was in the highly redacted FISA court decision released last week by the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, in response to a year-long lawsuit by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We spoke several weeks ago before the release of that document a few days ago with the attorney uh, leading that lawsuit, Mark Rummold from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Today, Mark is on a well-deserved vacation, but we will be touching base a little bit later in the show with EFF's Trevor Tim about what we learned from that release and specifically what we didn't learn the type of things that were redacted, and the reasons for them, as I covered this week in a special investigation uh, report on the U.S. secrecy state at bradblog.com, in which I spoke with a number of national security veterans, whistleblowers, journalists, and government privacy experts who all charge that some of those redactions in that document were meant to protect the government, not to protect national security. So that's a continuing and growing problem, and we will speak with uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation's Trevor Tim about that a bit later. Also, as usual, our uh, Green News Report is back with Desi Doyen, including news on the massive Yosemite Rim Fire now burning out of control in a sweltering California out here today. It is now larger than the city of Chicago as it swelters and burns, at least as California does. And also, oh, you'll want to stay tuned for that because it also includes one of my all-time favorite Green News Report stories and ending music. I love this story. It's hilarious. Uh, and I, I will tell you this. It, I will tell you only this. It involves Michelle Bachman, Marco Rubio, David Vitter, and, of course, the climate denier king of Congress himself, Senator James Inhofe. All of that is straight ahead, but we begin this afternoon in Washington, D.C., on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. As uh, we were live today, Desi Doyen, our producer here, was uh, following the proceedings. Uh, and we are live today, Wednesday, August 28, 2013, exactly 50 years to the day since Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech wrapped up the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Today, a number of dignitaries, including Barack Obama and former Presidents Carter and Clinton, addressed a crowd of thousands on a rainy afternoon in the uh, nation's capital at the Lincoln Memorial. Here's a bit from President Obama's speech this afternoon. Through setbacks and heartbreaks and gnawing doubt, that flame of justice flickered. It never died. And because they kept marching, America changed. Because they marched, the civil rights law was passed. Because they marched, a voting rights law was signed. Because they marched, doors of opportunity and education 
swung open so their daughters and sons could finally imagine a life for themselves beyond washing somebody else's laundry or shining somebody else's shoes. Because they marched, city councils changed and state legislatures changed and Congress changed and yes, eventually the White House changed. Eventually, the White House changed. Indeed, that was President Barack Obama speaking today on the very spot where Martin Luther King spoke 50 years ago this afternoon, speaking about the changes made in this country in those 50 years because they marched, because so many thousands of folks came together not just uh, for the March on Washington, but for marches all around the country, all of which this week, as we have been looking back 50 years ago, uh, has made me think about where we are going from here. And that's kind of what I want to uh, figure out today as we listen to some of the uh, sights and sounds from this afternoon and from the uh, from the other march. This was a march so big, they had to commemorate it twice, apparently, uh, with an event, a much bigger event, a much livelier event, I should say, even uh, over the weekend on uh, on Saturday, today was a little bit more uh, more somber, but because they marched, and it had made me think, does marching matter anymore? Do those kind of protests matter anymore? As a matter of fact, over the weekend, uh, uh, the event on Saturday and even the event today was so tightly stage-managed that at uh, a, a number of points, it just got downright uh, offensive. He, here's uh, Maneshka Ilya Tambi uh, speaking at, at the end of her remarks as she was cut off uh, by a band that was playing. Uh, it, it was it was like the Academy Awards at time where they would just turn off people's mic, start the band, and uh, start them uh, marching off the stage. The urgency of now for jobs for safe communities and a peaceful society. Realizing Dr. King's dream demands responding to... That was, that was her being cut off. Dr. Dreams, uh, Dr. King's dream demands, and then, oh, well, they turned off her mic and they sent her on her way. It was most offensive, frankly, when Merle Evers Williams, the, uh, the widow of slain civil rights activist uh, Medgar Evers, who was uh, gunned down just weeks before the uh, March on Washington back in 1963, it was most offensive, frankly, when she was cut off. Here are her remarks, all 43 seconds of them, that she was allowed to offer at the, uh, at the march uh, commemoration on Saturday. Dr. King and so many others helped to show us the way and give us the strength to move forward. I stand here today thankful to be 80 years of age and see all of those changes that have taken place and realize that there were people like Dr. King and so many others and yes, Medgar Evers, who gave a life and lives for justice and equality. Let us not forget that history. Let us move forward. I'm going to move off the stage because I hear the music being played. 
Just, I, I was frankly, I was appalled by that. Now, I don't want to focus on all of, uh, you know, the negative sides of all of this, but I think that that was appalling. And it's somewhat uh, illustrative, if you ask me, of the way these protests are now stage managed to within an inch of their lives. And uh, frankly, uh, they are so non-threatening. They are so uh, everybody behaving nicely, everybody marching through the barricades as they are supposed to. That was one thing in 1963, when America looked and had no idea that this type, this kind of numbers, these kind of numbers would show up to march on Washington. It's another thing now where people say, oh, you know what, okay, they're protesting. Look, thousands and thousands of people, as long as they're all well behaved, and then they go home afterwards, they don't stay overnight as the occupiers did in what was or could have been a very effective protest movement, so long as everybody goes home everything's fine, nobody gets hurt, and frankly, no politicians are concerned or threatened about it. Oh, it's just protest. We've been watching that for 50 years. Nothing to worry about. So what is the answer? Is marching the answer? Uh, I was uh, listening over the weekend and uh, today trying to find that answer, trying to find uh, the way out, trying to find the way to truly make change. We could do a whole show on this. I'd love to hear your input uh, on this uh, someday when we have more time to discuss where we go from here. But each of the speakers, it seems to me, seemed to touch on it a little bit. Here's Jimmy Carter, an extended clip from his comments today at the uh, 50th anniversary commemoration of the March on Washington at the Lincoln Memorial. Crucial question of our time is how to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to oppression and violence. In the Nobel Prize ceremony of 2002, I said that my fellow Georgian was, and I quote again, the greatest leader that my native state and perhaps my native country has ever produced. And I was not excluding presidents and even the founding fathers when I said this. I believe we all know how Dr. King would have reacted to the new ID requirements to exclude certain voters, especially African Americans. I think we all know how Dr. King would have reacted to the Supreme Court striking down a crucial part of the Voters' Rights Act just recently passed overwhelmingly by Congress. I think we all know how Dr. King would have reacted to unemployment among African Americans being almost twice the rate of white people, and for teenagers at 42%. I think we would all know how Dr. King would have reacted to our country being awash in guns, and for more and more states passing stand-your-ground laws. I think we know how Dr. King would have reacted for people of District of Columbia still not having full citizenship rights. And I think we all know how Dr. King would have reacted to have more than 835,000 African-American men in prison, five times as many as when I left office, and with one-third of all African-American males being destined to be in prison in their lifetimes. Well, there's a tremendous agenda ahead of us, and I'm thankful to Martin Luther King, Jr., that his dream is still alive. Thank you.
That was former President Jimmy Carter speaking today on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Uh, You heard there uh, President Carter speaking about how Dr. King might react to the Voting Rights Act being gutted by the Supreme Court. It seems to me that it remains the vote. It remains elections that are the only way that things move forward. It doesn't mean they will move forward through voting, through elections, but it seems to me right now it is the only possibility, the thing that we must fight for, and it is the thing, the right to vote, that it is being turned back. Almost every speaker who spoke both today and on Saturday uh, seemed to talk about that, about the right to vote and about the effort, frankly, by the Republican Party to turn back that right. U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder was one of these speakers on Saturday at the events. He had this to say about the U.S. Department of Justice's continuing efforts to enforce what's left of the Voting Rights Act and to use every tool to try to restore the right to vote in places where it is being taken away. We stand united by the work that lies ahead and by the journey that still stretches before us. This morning, we affirm that the struggle must and will go on in the cause of our nation's quest for justice until every eligible American has the chance to exercise his or her right to vote unencumbered by discriminatory or unneeded procedures, rules, or practices. It must go on until our criminal justice system can assure that all are treated equally and fairly in the eyes of the law. That was U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder speaking on Saturday, and he has vowed to use every tool in the arsenal of the DOJ uh, to make sure the uh, the right to vote continues. The right to vote. The right to vote. Frankly, I don't care if you vote. I care if you have the right to vote. And frankly, if those votes are counted, counted accurately and in a way that uh, the citizenry can know that they were counted accurately. That is slipping away all over the country, including out here in Los Angeles, including out here in California, where there is a bill by uh, Senator Alex Padilla, a Democrat, Uh, to do away with federal testing of all voting systems across the state of California. It's called AB 360. It is a terrible bill. It is getting no coverage. But I hope that we can cover it here uh, in the future because this bill is moving forward and it's moving forward quickly. It was just voted out of the assembly. AB 360, Senator Alex Padilla, who is running for secretary of state next year, this bill would give all power to one person, That's right, the Secretary of State to certify voting systems. So the ability for the people to oversee their own voting systems, the ability for the people to vote continues to be restricted. That seems to me the fight. That seems to be the only fight, frankly, uh, that everyone is talking about. Here is Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, talking about exactly that himself today during the 50th anniversary. We cannot be discouraged by a Supreme Court decision that said we don't need this critical provision of the Voting Rights Act because look at the states that made it harder for African Americans and Hispanics and students and the elderly and the infirm and poor working folks to vote. What do you know? They showed up, stood in line for hours and voted anyway. So obviously we don't need 
any kind of law. I think he's being ironic there. But a great democracy does not make it harder to vote than to buy an assault weapon. We must open those stubborn gates. Opening those stubborn gates, indeed. Bill Clinton at the Lincoln Memorial on the 50th anniversary of the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech and the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That's the key. That remains the key. That remains the common thread, I think, through every uh, speaker that we saw. How do we restore that right to vote? What do we do now that the Supreme Court has gutted that uh, right effectively uh, by putting a knife through the heart of the Voting Rights Act? Well, there's one Republican. I've talked about him here, Representative James Sensenbrenner, uh, the one who oversaw the 25-year reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act back in 2006 when it passed unanimously in the U.S. Senate. He seems to be right now a key person here trying to restore that act in the U.S. House of Representatives. He spoke over the weekend at the uh, RNC's commemoration for the 50th anniversary of uh, Martin Luther King's I have a dream speech. Here's what Representative James Sensenbrenner had to say about restoring the Voting Rights Act. I am committed to restoring the Voting Rights Act as an effective tool to prevent discrimination, more subtle discrimination now than overt discrimination. My job is to fix the Voting Rights Act. Now, the first thing we have to do is to take the monkey wrench that the court threw in it out of the Voting Rights Act and then use that monkey wrench to be able to fix it so that it is alive, well, constitutional, and impervious to another challenge that will be filed by the usual suspects. I'm with you on this. This is something that has to be done by the end of the year so that a revised and constitutional Voting Rights Act is in place before the 2014 election season, both primaries and general elections. Good. For uh, Congressman James Sensenbrenner there, we have had our differences over the years uh, with Congressman Sensenbrenner, big-time differences with the congressman, but he's absolutely right on this issue. Unfortunately, he's also virtually absolutely alone on this issue among Republicans. Those are the people he described as the usual suspects who will once again uh, challenge uh, the right to vote in a court of law. Uh, not completely alone. Uh, I'll point you to bradblog.com for uh, more on this, but a, uh, a rookie Republican candidate for the U.S. House in North Carolina, Jason Thigpen, uh, had, had some amusing and interesting and, uh, frankly, hopeful words to say uh, on Monday. He was speaking about the North Carolina. He's a, con- a candidate in North Carolina, a Republican a primary candidate for the U.S. House from North Carolina, where they have just passed the most draconian most suppressive voting law since the Jim Crow era. He described that law as a turd. He said, you can paint a turd and sell it as art, but it's still a turd. This is 2013, and any legislator that puts forth such a discriminatory bill should be laughed out of office. This is America, not 
Russia. Good for Jason Thigpen. Uh, He's running against Walter Jones uh, for the U.S. House, but good for him for speaking up. He had much more to say about that. He said also, if you believe in your message, you inspire people to get out and vote rather than telling them they cannot vote. So there is hope on the Republican side. Republicans uh, will be needed if there's going to be any hope of restoring the Voting Rights Act. But that seems to be the key. And uh, the one person who I think really nailed this, really nailed this, and you may have seen clips from this uh, over the weekend, but I want to play his entire speech. Congressman John Lewis, uh, who was arrested 40 times, who had his skull cracked on the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday, marching with uh, Martin Luther King for the right to vote in Selma, Alabama. He was uh, the youngest speaker back in 1963. And he was the final speaker on Saturday during the commemorations at the uh, Lincoln Memorial. I want to play his entire speech because he seems to be the one uh, who really, really, really nailed where we need to go from here. And he ought to know because he was uh, also speaking 50 years ago today. Congressman John Lewis from Georgia last Saturday at the Lincoln Memorial. Our next speaker... It's Congressman John Lewis. Now, band, there will be no wrap-up music for John Lewis. He risked his life. He is a member of Congress from Georgia. From Georgia, please welcome Congressman John Lewis. Fifty years ago, fifty years ago, I stood right here in this spot, 23 years old, had all of my hair and a few pounds lighter. So I come back here again to say that those days, for the most part, are gone. But we have another fight. We must stand up and fight the good fight as we march today. For there are forces, there are people who want to take us back. We cannot go back. We come too far. We want to go forward. Back in 1963, hundreds and thousands and millions of our brothers and sisters could not register to vote. When I stood here 50 years ago, I said, one man, one vote is the African cry. It is ours too. It must be ours. I also said, some people tell us to wait, tell us to be patient. I said 50 years later, we cannot wait. We cannot be patient. We want jobs and we want our freedom now. All of us, it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latino, Asian American or Native American. It doesn't matter whether we're straight or gay. We're one people, we're one family, we're one house. We all live in the same house. So I said to you, my brothers and sisters, We cannot give up. We cannot give out. We cannot give in. We must get out there and push and pull. 
Now, I, a few short years ago, almost 48 years ago, well, 48 years ago, almost 50 years ago, I gave a little blood on that bridge in Selma, Alabama, for the right to vote. I am not going to stand by and let the Supreme Court take the right to vote away from us. You cannot stand by. You cannot sit down. You got to stand up, speak up, speak out, and get in the way. Make some noise. The vote is precious. It is almost sacred. It is the most powerful, nonviolent tool we have in a democratic society, and we got to use it. Back in 1963, we hadn't heard of the internet. We didn't have a cellular telephone, my iPad, iPod. But we used what we had to bring about a nonviolent revolution. And I said to all of the young people, you must get out there and push and pull and make America what America should be for all of us. We must say to the Congress, Fix the Voting Rights Act. We must say to the Congress, pass comprehensive immigration reform. It doesn't make sense that millions of our people are living in the shadow. Bring them out into the light and set them on a path to citizenship. So hang in there. Keep the faith. I got arrested 40 times during the 60s, beaten, left bloody and unconscious. But I'm not tired, I'm not weary, I'm not prepared to sit down and give up. I am ready to fight and continue to fight, and you must fight. Thank you very much. Congressman John Lewis of Georgia last Saturday at the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, speaking at the spot where Martin Luther King spoke 50 years ago today and also where Congressman John Lewis spoke 50 years ago today. He was not a congressman. He was, however, the youngest of the speakers uh, to address the amassed crowds at the March on Washington that year. He said he gave blood on that bridge in Selma for the right to vote. I'm not going to stand by and let a Supreme Court take the right to vote away from us. You cannot stand by. You cannot sit down. You've got to stand up, speak up, speak out, and get in the way. Make some noise, he said, adding, I'm not tired. I'm not weary. Yeah, well, I am, Congressman. Glad you're not. But this fight will continue because it seems to me that's our only hope. And that's what we cover here on the Bradcast and at bradblog.com quite often. So I'm glad you can join us on this uh, on this very special day. We're going to take a quick break and come back with uh, much more. We're going to take a break from the uh, uh, anniversary of the march to look at some new developments in the NSA spying scandal. Yes, I called it a scandal. Uh, that continues. We're going to be joined by Trevor Tim from the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Desi Doyen for some Green News Report. All of that straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast.
I'm Andrew Tonkovich of Bibliocracy, Wednesday nights at 8, writing with both elegant urgency and what sometimes feels like reluctance. Novelist and short story writer Mark Sloka tells a coming-of-age story in his newest novel of teenagers in southeastern New York in that pivotal year, 1968. In Brewster, we meet the sad good boy, the beloved rebel bad boy, the girl whose arrival complicates their lives, already complicated by the Vietnam War and stifling class-driven expectations of a working-class town. These young people struggle to write their own autobiographies, but their faithful stories depend on the collective failure of imagination of adults. Join me and novelist Mark Sloka on his novel, Brewster, a deeply affecting and darkly beautiful story of resistance and remorse, Wednesday night at 8 on Bibliocracy. Don't talk about the weather. It's a military secret. Just keep your wits together. That's the safest way to keep it. These are critical times. Be careful of espionage. In such critical times, you've got to watch out for sabotage. <laughs> yes, you do. Welcome back. This is the Bradcast on KPFK. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, let's see. 1997. This is a report from 1997. The U.S. Senate Commission on Protecting and Reducing Government Secrecy back in 1997. It reads, excessive secrecy has significant consequences for the national interest when, as a result, policymakers are not fully informed. Government is not held accountable for its actions and the public cannot engage in informed debate. Sound familiar? That special commission's chairman at the time, uh, Senate, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, declared in the report's foreword, the quote, it is time to assert certain American fundamentals, foremost of which is the right to know what government is doing and the corresponding ability to judge its performance. He was the chair of the U.S. Senate Commission on Protecting and Reducing government secrecy. Uh, this week at bradblog.com, we ran a, a special report, our continuing investigation into the secrecy state, uh, the massive secrecy state, the massive overclassification state. Uh, and we took a look at the recent release of the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court documents, the decision that was released last week following a year-long investigation uh, I'm sorry, a year-long lawsuit by the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, who was able to finally shake that decision loose, that secret decision from the secret court responding to the NSA's, I should say, rejecting the NSA's request uh, for surveillance, uh, finding uh, that the government had uh, repeatedly uh, misled the court in secret and that in violation of both the Constitution and the rule of law had, in fact, uh, collected the emails from tens of thousands of Americans who had nothing to do uh, at all with uh, with terrorism. We spoke about that case and the EFF's Electron Frontier Foundation's attempt to get those documents uh, via Freedom of Information Act uh, a few weeks ago with Mark Rummold, uh, the attorney at EFF who was working on that. Mark is on vacation this week, but we're delighted and a well-deserved vacation, I should say, since he finally got the documents 
in redacted form. Uh, but I'm uh, delighted to be joined instead by Trevor Tim, an activist and blogger with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, he's also, Trevor is also the executive director of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, defending and supporting cutting-edge transparency journalism in the face of adversity. Trevor, welcome to the broadcast, my friend. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, really appreciate you jumping in here. Okay, uh, we're running late because of the March on Washington. So what is your biggest takeaway from the release of that uh, secret 2000 and, uh, 2011 decision by the secret uh, FISA court last week? Well, I think it's how the NSA polices itself and how the court or the the court can't necessarily police the NSA without the NSA telling them what they're doing. You know, I think the big takeaway here is that uh, this collection method, which uh, collected over 150,000 Americans' emails, that had, innocent Americans' emails that had nothing mm-hmm. to do with terrorism, that the court ruled unconstitutional, was actually in effect for three years uh, before the NSA even alerted the court that it was happening. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, the only way the court is allowed to do uh, effective oversight is uh, by responding to what the NSA tells them. Now, there's a, a really important footnote that you highlighted in your long piece on on Brad blog that uh, you know is worth underscoring, and it, it talks about how this was actually the third time in three years that the, the court had been. Uh, materially uh, misrepresented uh, by the NSA. And they they really go on to excoriate the NSA for basically not telling the truth to the court or hiding things about the way that they collect information. And this, of course, leads to privacy abuses, like the the what the opinion says, the 150,000 Americans' emails. So uh, it just goes to show you the court really doesn't have the power to wield effective oversight when they're relying on the NSA to police themselves. So one of the things I've heard since the release of this document was, oh, look, the court found that the NSA was uh, behaving uh, inappropriately, so they ended the program. So the system works. Nothing to worry about here. But what you're saying, uh, Trevor, is that, in fact, uh, what they were doing was illegal, went on year after year for about three years uh, before anybody noticed it, before they did stop the, uh, the, the program. That would seem to underscore that the system does not work as it's currently laid out, that this uh, system where the government goes to the court, a non-adversarial court, uh, there's nobody there arguing the other side, it would seem to underscore, in fact, the opposite of what I've heard uh, a lot of uh, politicians and, and, and people saying, the system does not work as it's, uh, as it's currently designed. Right, exactly. You know, I think the Snowden documents really underscore this fact. You know, the Washington Post had a great report a few weeks ago talking about the privacy audit the NSA did, an internal privacy audit, in which it was clear that they, uh, there were some times when they violated uh, the privacy of Americans that they just didn't even bother telling the FISA court, basically <laughs> violating the court's own rules. And the same thing can be see- said with, uh, can be seen mm-hmm. in news we learned last week in which uh, after weeks and weeks of the NSA saying there had never been any willful violations of privacy, that all of the violations of privacy were unintentional or by mistake, uh, that actually there had been approximately a dozen cases of willful violations of privacy in the past uh, decade or so. And a lot of them dealt with uh, former spouses or partners of NSA analysts. And the, the most interesting part of these stories was that... You, you mean of, they, were, they were like looking at, uh, they were following their, their former spouse to see where they were going. They were using the tools of the NSA for their own private purposes. 
Exactly. The same type of behavior you see every single time yeah. uh, government agents are given this type of power with no oversight. They're going to abuse it for these personal reasons. Uh, you know, you, you, I'm sure many people predicted this is what would have happened uh, when uh, these powers were, were first revealed. But the, the most important part of these stories was not that they were necessarily chasing love interests, uh, but the fact that they were all of these violations were self-reported. So the only reason the NSA or the, the FISA court uh, ever found out about these uh, violations was because the NSA analysts themselves basically told on themselves. Uh, and so we have no idea how many times NSA analysts did this and didn't tell on themselves, yes. which, would you, which you would assume by human nature that if you're doing something against the law, you're not necessarily going to turn yourself in every time. Exactly. And this is one of the other things that I've heard since the release of these documents, uh, particularly from supporters of, uh, of President Obama and of, of, of the NSA uh, surveillance program. Oh, look, uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation was able to get at these documents via the, uh, via the FOIA process. We don't need those, uh, those leakers, those rascals, those traitors like Edward Snowden and Bradley Manning. After all, Electronic Frontier Foundation was able to follow the law, was able to make a FOIA request, and they got the documents. See? Nothing to worry about. Now, mind you, those documents were highly redacted, and I want to talk about that in a second. But what's your thought uh, about the notion that, oh, we don't need these leakers. We've got the uh, Freedom of Information Act process that folks like uh, EFF was able to go through. Well, we've been at this case for... um over a year now, mm-hmm. and before the Snowden disclosures, uh, trying to get any information out of the NSA about this case was like pulling teeth. You know, the first set of documents they released about six months ago were 30 pages of literally uh, every word blacked out. Uh, it told us it told us nothing, and it wasn't until uh, these disclosures started happening where uh, where the government actually started to give a little bit and were forced to start releasing this information. You know, it helped that the FISA court uh, basically ruled that they had to release this uh, to us. But, uh, in fact, the brief that we filed in the FISA court uh, just uh, a few months ago was the first uh, public motion ever to um, come before the court. And that was because it's, it's virtually impossible to figure out actually how to file a public motion in the FISA court. It took us actually a very long time. And uh, the, the because it's a secret was, court, because nobody right. knows where it is, where exactly. they exactly. Yeah, right. nobody even knows ex- the location of the court. Right. So try, try try calling up their court clerk one time to see if you can <laughs> file a brief. Right. Uh, it would be an interesting essay for sure. But uh, you know, the idea that they were doing this without Snowden is just ludicrous. I mean, now all we've been asking for this type of transparency that they're now slowly, mm-hmm. begrudgingly giving us. Uh, for years and years, and they have just stonewalled us. And now all of a sudden, uh, it seems that, that we're finally getting somewhere. And it just happens to be the, 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 within the same months of, of the, the biggest leak in, in uh, NSA history. A complete coincidence. Uh, Trevor Tim from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You're listening to the Bradcast on KPFK and many other fine networks. Uh, Trevor, uh, the report that I wrote this week took a look at the redactions that came with, these do- with this decision. You did get a release of the decision, but a lot of it was redacted. I, I, 
I guess, I'm sure, uh, a lot of it was necessarily redacted, but I took a look at one rather innocuous section uh, of the report that seems almost inexplicably redacted. And when I spoke to uh, a lot of national security uh, former uh, veterans, whistleblowers, journalists, uh, privacy experts, they all seem to say the same thing. They all seem to say that this does not appear to be redacted uh, due to harm uh, to national security. This seems to be redacted to protect the government from embarrassment or even criminality. Uh, and, and they said this was, you know, including uh, FBI 9-11 whistleblower Colleen Raleigh. She was Time Person of the Year in 2002, a special agent for 20 years. She was 13 years the Freedom of, uh, Freedom of Information Act officer in the FBI's uh, Minneapolis division. I talked to William Binney, who had spent decades at the NSA, NSA building the very surveillance program that we're all now looking at and that he has been blowing the whistle about for some time. They all looked at it and they said the same thing, that it seems that the government does this a lot. They do it out of convenience, not to protect national security, but to protect themselves. Uh, Your thoughts on that, uh, you know, after going through a lot of documents over the years that have been redacted in a similar way, and, and what does EFF intend to do about the redactions in this current document? Oh, well, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you just see this in pretty much every episode where information uh, gets leaked, and when you compare it to the official release, you see all sorts of uh, crazy, nonsensical redactions. I mean, the perfect example is the WikiLeaks cables. You know, the ACLU uh, actually filed a FOIA suit against the State Department to to show the absurdity behind their redaction process. You know, we obviously we have the full unredacted WikiLeaks cables, but when uh, the state when the ACLU FOIA'd 13 of the uh, official cables, uh, they came back with uh, all of these absurd redactions. You know, all this information, of course, is already in the public domain, so it's not uh, necessarily a secret. And uh, you, when you hold the documents up to each other, it just, it just shows that they oftentimes don't classify things for any real reason uh, that could protect national security, uh, but it's for, like you said, embarrassing uh, information that might, uh, you know, hurt an official personally um, or, you know, hurt mm-hmm. his career, uh, but not necessarily anything that would hurt national security. And, you know, it, you know, unfortunately, we don't know what's behind the redactions in the opinion, but, um, you know, time and again, we've seen the same thing. I will say that actually the opinion, uh, we were expecting more redactions than we got. There are some, obviously, some curious ones, mm-hmm. and we'll, we will be filing more FOIA suits uh, regarding what was in the opinion. But uh, th- this redaction process for this was actually uh, less uh, blacked out than we would normally see. Colleen Rowley, uh, the, uh, the the FBI veteran, told me that it's safe to black it out. They can get in trouble for withholding. Uh, they can't get in trouble for withholding, only for releasing. So when in doubt, they black it out, it seems. Stephen Aftergood, a, uh, a privacy uh, expert with the uh, Federation of American Scientists, uh, their secrecy project, he said that uh, right now the order, the executive order from President Obama is overly broad and vague on the subject of what constitutes harm to national security. So it seems that they seem to err on the side of safety. Oh, if we're not sure, just go ahead and black it out. But he says the entire project, uh, the the entire um, uh, process 
is subjective, and it depends on whoever it is who happens to be doing the uh, the classification or the declassification that day. The good news, however, Mark Rummold uh, from EFF uh, told me uh, for my report at bradblog.com that you guys intended uh, to force the government to explain each and every redaction uh, to the court's satisfaction, and if the court is not satisfied, then that information uh, that was redacted will be made public that seems to be good news and even better news that you're going to continue the process and continue to try to uh, shake out these documents that uh, the government, it seems to be, uh, seems to me, ought to release. That we ought to know, you know, not in full, not in full, it's appropriate to keep secrets, but uh, it just seems right now we have a massive secrecy state and it's not about protecting national security. It is about protecting the government. Uh, what do we do, Trevor Tim, from here to help out? Uh, and actually, before you answer that uh, question very quickly, I see that the NSA, uh, the president announced the NSA Oversight Commission yesterday. The members of that commission include Richard Clark, Michael Morell, Jeffrey Stone, Cass Sunstein, and Peter Swire. Uh, no women, apparently, necessary on that commission. Uh, your thoughts? thoughts on on those folks, Trevor, and if this will help uh, bring any added transparency to this NSA surveillance nightmare? Well, I have mixed feelings about the people on this board. You know, there are a couple people who could potentially do some good work, uh, Jeffrey Stone being the president of the American Constitutional Society. Uh, unfortunately, he's very close with President Obama. You know, they both worked at the Chicago Law School. He had worked for his campaign. Um, but hopefully he can bring a critical eye to this because he's a very smart man, uh, though he has said some uh, pretty disturbing things in the light of, of everything that we've learned about Edward Snowden originally when he had been um, uh, found out as the leaker. Uh, Peter Swire is another person who's been working on privacy for a long time and could potentially uh, be a, a good member of this board. Uh, but the other three I, I really don't have a lot of confidence in. You know, Michael Morell worked for the CIA up until the day that the president announced this panel was was coming <laughs> oh, together. Man. You know, Cass Sunstein is married to uh, President Obama's uh, uh, U.N. ambassador that just got confirmed, and he's obviously worked for the president for years. And... Um, Richard Clark, uh, who is often an independent voice mm -hmm. and a very smart voice, uh, but uh, as far as, as as internet privacy goes, uh, actually, uh, it has proposed some really radical ideas. Like he suggested in the New York Times last year that the that the Department of Homeland Security be able to actually scan every uh, internet communication coming in and into and out of the country, much like the NSA actually already does. Uh, to search for malware and cybersecurity uh, threats. So Oy. the idea that he is going <laughs> to want to rein in some of these surveillance programs, I think, uh, uh, is, is, is probably a little misguided. Uh, and on, on top of all that, you know, this, this is being run through the Director of National Intelligence, who, of course, was the one who lied to Congress about all this. Exactly right, yeah. So, you know, this isn't exactly an independent commission. No, it isn't. I noticed nobody from the EFF or uh, Glenn Greenwald. For some reason, they left him off the list, didn't invite him onto this co uh, commission. I can't understand why. Trevor, Tim, I, I wish we had more time for this. Hopefully we'll get to do it again in the future. Trevor, Tim, from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org. You can follow Trevor, and you should follow Trevor, on the Twitters at Trevor Tim, T-R-E-V-O-R-T-I-M-M. On the Twitters, uh, Trevor, really appreciate your time uh, uh, jumping in here this afternoon. 
Oh, well, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks, my friend. We will talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right. Let's do some green news. It's not easy being green. No, it's not. You never have enough time. It seems you're That's true. You're you always pushed to the back of the show things. as if you're some second-class It's not like it's important or anything. No, it is not. Uh, Desi Doy, and that is our producer, Desi Doy, my co-host on the Green News Report. And uh, Desi, before we get to today's Green News Report, let me say a huge Thank you for uh, sifting through all of that audio today from the uh, 50th anniversary of the uh, March on Washington, pulling out so many key clips both today and from Saturdays. And there was so much more that went on. And one of the things that they did talk about was they were uh, of interest to me was bringing up the environmental issues that we have that are facing us, that uh, the social justice is also involved in that. That made its way in. uh, Bill Clinton talked about it. Jimmy Carter talked about it. Reverend Yearwood talked about it. I mean, it was all over. It was, Which it was we really talk about in our latest Green News report. I want to get to it before yes. we run up against the clock. Here is our latest Green News report. These 40,000 foot columns is just unreal. The Yosemite Rim Fire threatening San Francisco's water and electricity. Climate change is a life and death issue. A new civil rights issue at the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. It hasn't been this bad for more than a century. Extreme weather around the world from China to Australia. Plus, windows are being boarded up and grocery stores are virtually empty as Marco Rubio threatens everything in his path. A call to name hurricanes after climate change deniers. All of that and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The Farmer's Almanac is out and is predicting big problems for the Super Bowl. They're saying that it's going to be a pretty cold winter. This upcoming uh, winter will redefine cold. That's what they're saying. Wait, Fox News doesn't believe the prediction of thousands and thousands of scientists? But when it comes to the Farmer's Almanac, they're good to go with that? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I don't even know where to start with that Fox News thing and the the Farmer's Almanac, so I'm not even going to (laughs) start. Well, just to point out that meteorologists do say that the Farmer's Almanac is uh, really actually more just like a Ouija board of weather. No kidding, and Fox would put its confidence in a Ouija board. Anyway, what do you have for us in regards to real news this week? This is something that uh, we have to live with. It may even get worse in years to come, but California will be ready for it. California Governor Jerry Brown has declared a state of emergency in the fight against the massive Rim Fire on the west flank of the iconic Yosemite National Park. The fire is now more than 200 square miles, an area bigger than the city of Chicago, and it's very close to San Francisco's primary water reservoir and has already damaged hydroelectric power facilities, and its impacts will continue long after the fire is out. When you burn down everything, you got uh, a moonscape out there that with floods can contaminate the water. Scientists attribute the significant increase in massive wildfires in the U.S. to changes in land use and forest management, but mostly increased drought and heat induced by climate change, as scientist Michael Herto tells ClimateCentral.org. When we crank the temperature up, that snow melt happens even earlier in the year, and then we end up with a longer, drier, warmer fire season. Fire officials say that the firefighting season is now several months longer thanks to climate change. Yes, and this year specifically is shaping up to be California's driest and hottest on record.
Also seeing their hottest year on record, down under in the Southern Hemisphere, Sydney, Australia, just had its hottest winter on record, copying the record warm winter we had in the U.S. last year. Unprecedented heat waves in East China and Russia have given way to record monsoon flooding that has killed hundreds, while record relentless rains in the Philippines are again drowning most of the capital city of Manila underwater. And did we mention that July 2013 was the sixth warmest on record? Didn't need to. I read it last year in the Farmer's Almanac. (laughs) Climate change is on the agenda at the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington this week. During Saturday's events on the National Mall and wearing a no Keystone XL pipeline cap, a fiery call to action from Reverend Lennox Yearwood of the Hip Hop Caucus. Climate change is a part of our generation. Climate change is a life and death issue and it is really a civil rights issue it's interesting has climate change been brought into the civil rights uh, realm before or is this sort of the first emergence of it that we saw in dc this is the first national emergence of it but there has been talk about this among different groups it is an emerging civil rights issue because pollution and extreme weather disproportionately harm poor and minority communities In other news, Entergy, the owner of the troubled Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant in Vermont, announced Tuesday they will close that plant for good, partly because of the glut of natural gas that's reduced their profits. They just forgot to mention that the state of Vermont has been suing them for years trying to get them to leave. So within the past few months, we saw the closure of the San Onofre nuclear plant out here in California and now a second nuclear plant in Vermont. Yes, not good days for nuclear. No, so sorry to hear that. Finally, Michelle Bachman is on the way, folks, and specifically the eye of Michelle Bachman will be hitting Florida in a few hours. A creative approach to ridiculing politicians who deny climate science. Name hurricanes after them. Senator David Bitter is turning out to be one of the hugest and costliest disasters in American history. And now an entire nation is wondering how they'll ever recover from the disaster that is James Inhofe. Check out 350.org's whole video at our website, greennews.bradblog.com. Oh, man, I like that. Senator Marco Rubio is expected to pound the eastern seaboard sometime early tonight. For more on all of that and the stories we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Remember, you can download us anytime via iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. Find us and like us on the Facebook and follow us 24-7 on the Twitters at Green News Report. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Congresswoman Michelle Bachman is incredibly dangerous. If you value your life, please seek shelter from Michelle Bachman. And this has been your Green News Report. David Bitter is literally lifting boats out of the water and tossing them onto the land. Here I am. <laughs> Rock you like a hurricane. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I love that. It's a great video. I love that. Good find, Desi Doyen. Thank you very much for that report and for everything today. Uh, That wraps us up, I think, today here. Uh, Stay tuned for John Wiener and the 4 O'Clock Report as KPFK's special coverage of the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington continues. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to G, our soundboard operator, and our guest, Trevor Tim, this afternoon. Uh, We will We'll see you same Brad time, same Brad channel next week. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters at the Brad Blog and of course at Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, America, and keep up the fight.